the first reading this morning is from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Recent acquaintance recently told me that the least, the least stressful new interactions in his life, much to his surprise, were in the army. Because in the army, status relationships are completely evident and common knowledge. You just look at how many stripes a person has on their shoulder, and that's it. Status negotiations are complete. Uh, outside the military, it's a little more confusing, especially in a world in which billionaires wear hoodies. And... Uh, it's high status to pretend you're low status, and no one is exactly sure who the elite refers to. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this letter to the Corinthians. It's the beginning of the letter. It's right after the greeting. Paul is addressing a church in Corinth which is divided. Members are bragging about who they were baptized by. They're basically jockeying for position. They're, they're, they're talking about their spiritual pedigree, if you will, forming little clubs within the church. Who were you baptized by? Oh, I was baptized by Cephas. Who were you baptized by? Oh, Apollos. What about you, Paul? It makes him upset. And it makes him upset because this sort of understanding of faith as being about who you were baptized by turns church into sort of what, what a lot of us confuse it with already, which is, do you go to the, were you baptized by the right person? Do you go to the right church? Do you come from the right family? Do you espouse the right politics? Do you belong to the right clubs? Or do you uh, eschew all the right things? Status anxiety. That's what we're talking about here. And it's not just a 21st century phenomenon. It was right there in Corinth, too. And it's not just a, a religious thing. It's, it's everywhere in life. Status anxiety, what do I mean? Well, it's simply our worry about where we stand in the world. 
whether we're going up or down, whether we're winners or losers. We care about our status for one simple reason, because people tend to be nice to us according to the amount of status we have. You know, if, they, if someone hears you've been promoted, there might be a little more energy in their smile. Or if they hear you've been fired, well, they might pretend not to see you. <laughs> Hopefully that's not happening with you. We tend to make these a little bit more uh, vague, you know. Nothing like, uh, if you want to know what status games are really like on their surface, just hang out with a bunch of nine-year-old boys. It's like, I'm taller than you, done. Okay? But instead, we have to sort of pretend we're not playing those games. We talk about connections. We play the name game when we meet someone, which is usually our way of asking, are you as significant, as sophisticated as I am? Are you as intelligent as I am? How do we figure this out without actually saying it? Because it's important for some reason that we figure it out. Ultimately, we worry about having no status because we're not very good at remaining confident in ourselves if other people don't seem to like or respect us very much, right? We all have what one writer calls a status sonar that goes off. You walk into someone's house and bing, this sure seems like a nicer house than mine. You get in their car, bing, why is it so clean in here? You go out with another couple for drinks. Bing! They sure seem to enjoy each other more than my wife and I do. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe it's when you look in the mirror. Whatever it is, whatever that ping is returning, it's maybe some form of happiness or affirmation. It's usually anxiety or doubt. Sociologists or commentators say that status anxiety today is worse than it ever has been before. I don't know if that's true, but they say it's because the possibilities for achievement seem to be greater than ever. In other words, there are so many more things we expect if we're not to judge ourselves as losers. Ada Calhoun, the writer, she she just put out a book called Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. And she's talking about Gen X women primarily who, who have, maybe you know, but there's an insomnia of, uh, an epidemic of insomnia. And basically just a gut-level burnout, fatigue, and restlessness reported by more and more women in that station. However, it applies much more broadly. In speaking with NPR last week, Ada said that one thing a sociologist who studies generations told me is that our generation tends to judge ourselves based on everything. So if, you know, in the past the questions were, well, how nice is your home? Or... How good are you at your job? Now it's like all of those things. Are you a good parent? Are you good at work? Is your house nice? Are you in shape? Are you recycling? (laughs) It's like every single factor in your life you have to excel at. And Calhoun says, I think that level of pressure is simply unsustainable. It doesn't help our status anxiety that we're more or less constantly surrounded by stories of people who do seem to be excelling at all those things. You know, depending on how much social media you consume, it can sometimes feel absurd that you haven't attained it all. Now make no mistake, even something good, and almost all of the things I've just mentioned are good, something good like baptism will become a vehicle of division to the extent it becomes a vehicle of status. We're genius at doing this. 
But there's a couple problems. First, none of our status sonar are particularly accurate. They're all a little out of whack. Some people are status exaggerators. You know, sixes who think they're eights. And when they ask out women who are nines, they're flummoxed when they get rejected, right? Other people are status minimizers. They will never apply for jobs for which they're amply qualified because they assume they'll be crushed by the competition. Either direction. Your status sonar is kind of, you know, doesn't work quite right. But secondly, there's no top. There's no end to these ladders of status. It gets longer the higher you climb. And if you want to know, I mean, the world championship status games have just concluded in Davos, Switzerland this week at something called the World Economic Forum. And um, if if you want to figure out if there's an end to this, well, then uh, go to Davos And after you go skiing, you can witness CEOs and White House aides standing in line outside of various places waiting to get checked off by some attractive young person with an iPad so that they can get into the party. In fact, Davos is just the tip of the iceberg. Alfalfa Club weekend is about to begin. And it goes on and on and on. There's now a large industry of high-level socializing. That includes not just the top corporate, political, and media leaders, but a vast profession of public relations professionals who are devoted to helping instill certain gatherings with an exclusive mystique that makes influential people want to go, or at least afraid that what will happen if they don't go. So what's um, Paul's response to the status Olympics that are going on in this church in Corinth. Well, first of all, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Because I don't want to be ammunition in your ladder-climbing competition in ways to make each other feel poorly. But secondly, he says, and this is more important, he says that Jesus Christ is not divided. The church is not a new status game, a new ladder to climb. It's where you go when you fall off the ladder. Jesus is the the guy you meet at the bottom of the ladder, not at the top. Christ is the end of status. And thirdly, he says that the gospel message is more important than its outward sign. He subordinates baptism to the message he's come to preach, which is a message not about who you affiliate yourself with, but who has affiliated himself with you. He underlines it all by saying, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, meaning the message of the cross is nonsense to those who are climbing those ladders and are holding on for dear life, but it is the best possible news to those whose ladders got sawed in half when they were 55 and didn't get the promotion they thought they were going to get. It also means that the things that give you status, that give me status, that we think make make us exceptional or righteous, are spiritual impediments to the extent that they convince us that we don't need God. In fact, what brings the church together, what makes this a place to come to on a Sunday morning as, you know, as, 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 as pretty as the windows are, what really comes to, what makes baptism necessary in the first place is our common failure, need, and sin. Not our common virtue or achievement.
Otherwise, you could stay home and listen to those great interviews on NPR. Let me close with an example of what this looks like, and then I'm, then I'm finished. We're heading into the, basically the great, um, <clears throat> a almost religious week of sports uh, observance in our country with the Super Bowl coming up and lots of college basketball games going on. So I thought I'd give you a story about, it's a true story about San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich. Now, I'm not, I don't know that much about basketball, but I know this, that Popovich is legendary. He, uh, because of how many games he has won that he wasn't supposed to win, his teams. In fact, so they do these charts of you know, good coaches, and a good coach wins the games that they're supposed to win, and they lose the ones they're not supposed to lose. And then there's Greg Popovich who's like a planet unto himself, having won so many games he wasn't supposed to win. And the conventional wisdom behind his success has to do with his team's remarkable cohesion. A cohesion that is all the more remarkable because in professional sports, the more baskets you get, the more your individual statistics go up, the better your endorsements and the more money you can make. And so there's not an incentive, really, to be a cohesive team. The Spurs, though, are known for playing unselfishly, for passing the ball when they could take a shot, and not bowing to the egos of their superstars. It sounds simple enough, but things get interesting in how Popovich actually instills such unity in his little church. As a major case in point, many Spurs players point to the same specific date when asked about Popovich's approach. The date is June 18, 2013. It's the day that the Spurs played Game 6 of that year's championship series against the Miami Heat. Going into the evening, they were up three games to two, which meant they just needed a win and they'd have the championship. And with 28 seconds left in the game, the Spurs were ahead by five points, all signs pointing to a San Antonio victory. LeBron James and the Heat had other plans, though. And when the dust settled... The Spurs had suffered one of the most devastating losses in franchise history. Suffice it to say, the players were demoralized, shocked, crushed, gutted, not only for the payday, but for the fact that they had just watched their status, the ultimate trophy, being snatched away from them at the last minute. Now, before the game, the Spurs had booked one of their favorite restaurants, for a possible celebration. Foreshadowing. <clears throat> Everyone assumed that Greg Popovich would cancel those plans and send them home to nurse their wounds as much as possible before that impending seventh game. But he surprised everyone by insisting they all go straight to the restaurant. He arrived there before the rest of the team, put in orders for appetizers, uncorked bottles of wine, and picked dishes for each player individually. He then stood at the door and greeted every player as they came through the door. Some got a hug, some got a smile, some got a light touch on the arm. The wine flowed, and they sat and ate together. And Popovich moved around the room, connecting with each man one by one, and then their families. People later said that he behaved like the father of a bride at a wedding, in a moment that could have been filled with frustration, recrimination, and anger, he filled their cups. In other words, he gave these men a glimpse of what it looks like to absorb their collective shame and defeat and reforge them as a unit 
rather than allow them to wallow in their loss and failure. More than that, he showed them grace, doling out love and comfort when they felt like they least deserved it. Because that's where grace lives, in loss and defeat, when and where the pedestal of status shatters. Grace gave that team what they needed to face the future with confidence. And it wasn't a confidence in themselves, but in the coach who had everything in hand. And this is what we're talking about today when we talk about Jesus Christ, who emptied himself of all status, first being born as a baby, but then submitting himself to humiliation and death, which is utter foolishness to those clamoring after status with all their sweat and cash. And yet this cross, this cross, this humiliation, this is the power of God, a God who came not to establish a new status ladder, but to rescue those who've fallen off of it, not just people living in Corinth in the first century, but you today here This foolish gospel does not have to do with lining up your affiliations correctly, but about the God who sees you in your jockeying for status and in your failure to procure it and fills your cup by pouring out his own. Amen.